Welcome to episode 12 of Sullivan Street, where we have a very special guest. Uh, but first, I'll say hi and good afternoon to Chris. I want to say how are you, but I already know you're in a good mood because of our yeah. special guest. Am I not? Am, am, you're saying I'm not special anymore, Eric? Is that what you're <laughs> okay. trying to tell me? <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. I am here every time, and this person hasn't been here before and is, you know, a, a sort of an important person in uh in the thing that we have a podcast about. In, in so. the Counting Crows lore. So yeah, let's not waste any time. So our guest today is Matt Malley, as you know, probably from the podcast description, a founding band member of Counting Crows, one of the uh, five, I believe, founding uh, band members. Mm. So officially in the band, I think from 9105, so about 15 or 16 years, and a uh, member of uh, of the band during their their four first uh, studio albums. So, without any further, thank you so much for joining on the podcast. Good afternoon, Matt Valley. Hey guys, good to be here. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I know we have all um, sorts of, of 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 questions for you. Uh, again, thank you uh, for joining us. Um, I don't know, Chris. Did you have any kind of introduction uh, questions or something you wanted to start off the bat with? Well, I figured I figured we kind of start at the beginning, sort of how how you sort of came to sort of be asked to be in the band. I was actually kind of curious. I know you're part of the early part, but like who was in the band already when you were asked to be a part of it? So who's because obviously there's Adam and there's Dave Bryson to beginning. But Mm -hmm. what's the what's the sort of like entry point there? Yes. Good. uh, Good question. Adam and Dave were a duo. They were an acoustic duo first. And. I I was in a band with Dave Bryson about two years before that called Mr. Dog. And it was a great band. It was it was one of my favorite bands of my life, along with Counting Crows. And we fashioned ourselves after Roxy Music. And anyway, mm. D- Dave, Dave and I ran into each other literally on the street in Berkeley. And he said, I'm playing with a guy right now and we're wanting to get a band together now. So why don't you come and meet him? And so Dave brought me in. Adam and I clicked immediately because we found out that we're both into British Isle folk rock, which is a very under the radar genre. There's bands like Fairport Convention and Steel Ice mm-hmm. Band and Pentangle. And they're the bands that inspired Led Zeppelin at the beginning. And I've been a fanboy of that music since I was in my early 20s. And Adam knew about it. So I thought, well, I've never met anybody that actually knows these guys. And he mm-hmm. was surprised I knew about it. And so I was in. That's how I got in. And uh, and then Adam brought in the keyboardist Charlie Gillingham and Dave. I believe it was Dave that brought in our first drummer Steve Bowman, and that was the f- the five that made that first record. Well, it's interesting when you said that you met um, Dave on the street, but did he know you from somewhere? To said, oh, you played played bass, or did you have to do some kind of audition or something like that? Uh, no, D- Dave already knew me because we had been in that band, but it but it had been a couple of years since we saw each other. And so, oh, Dave I see, knew, I see, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dave kind of knew the, how I played, and and just they were. That was probably the luckiest week of my life because they were starting to get a band. They were looking for musicians, <laughs> you know, Dave and Adam. And when Adam sung, I remember we, Adam told us as kind of a weird homework assignment: go home and pick a song that we can cover. And I I brought in "What's Next to the Moon" by ACDC. And when Adam sung that. I, I thought, man, we, we really got a tiger by the tail here because he really was a, I, I thought, what a good singer, you know? So that's how that all started, you know? Oh, the five oh thank of you. you at that first rehearsal or was it like three of you like kind of playing because, that together? 
Good question. Uh, uh, no, it was the five of us that came in, I believe, that first rehearsal. Yeah, yeah. But Adam and Dave were playing around here and Mr. Jones as a duo, pretty much like they sound on the record uh, in bars around San Francisco at that time. you know. And then when that band formed, it happened pretty fast. Uh, there was a moment I yeah. remember uh, we were, you know how being in a band is like you go to your sound check in the afternoon and you all go get a burrito in somewhere you're in San Francisco at a club. And we came back after our burritos and saw a line going around the block and thought that was some club next door where somebody else was playing and they found out it was for us. And so that, that was a shock. That was the first shock, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> and in San Francisco, so the burritos are excellent, right? Oh I mean, yeah. It's just the best part. You know it. Yes, they are good. <laughs> they are good. That's yeah. I don't think I realized it was all just sort of like one moment of like, okay, we're going from like two to five in just like kind of a snap of a finger. But then there just, was, and again, that ended up being the five that made the record. Yes, that was the five. And uh, with Dave Emmerglick guesting actually on that first record. Um, but it, that was the f- core five. And But there was a moment that, that uh, was miraculous. And maybe you guys already have have covered this topic, but there was a thing called the Gavin convention where nine major labels came to the Bay area. They were looking for talent and we were already a buzz in the Bay area and they had our demo tape and some people knew about it. So most of the labels came to see counting crows and we played, it was called, Oh, I forget the name of the club, the I beam, I think. And it was the nine labels, including the and of A and M. His name. His name was Andy. I forget his last name. But <laughs> nine major labels came to see us, and the next morning, nine labels offered us a record deal, and that was. I did hear about that part. I didn't know about the convention or anything. Like uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, you know, it's it's funny going back. To, was there a re? You said you said you're from. Uh, you told me you were from originally from that area. Mm-hmm. But what were you? Can I ask what you were doing at the time? Were you looking to like for? band to be your career and and yes. uh well, you... the good good question i i was uh see I, I just turned 27 and i was still living with my parents you know I, I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit and uh <laughs> trying to move out here and there renting a bedroom in someone's house and then back to my parents house because i failed again and i was ready to give up counting crows happened right when i was giving up i was mm-hmm. in I was signed up to go to Oklahoma city to become an air traffic controller. I loved airplanes and uh, I, I, I still love airplanes and, and I was uh, ready. I was, I even sold my bases. I don't think I owned a base. In fact, I can tell you, I didn't own a bass guitar. I had to borrow Dave wow. Parsons bass. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. To, to go meet the band. And uh, I was giving up. I was literally giving up and then, and then everything ignited, you know? So it was that's magical. kind of amazing. Just like walking down the street and like, Bam. Like, had you just, had you not looked up and seen Dave? Who knows? Yes. Who knows? That's amazing. Yes, I know. I know. I know. Gosh, exactly. The the way that, that the things that life can do. Yeah. Yeah. One, one other just like pre-Crows moment I wanted to ask about, uh, and it's actually particularly because you play the bass. And I guess I can go through, I think I looked at the credits of the albums and on the first album, you were also credited for some other guitar, but obviously you were known as the bass player, electric bass, double bass. And then my question is sometimes with bass players is actually, how did you get into playing bass? Because that's sometimes the instrument that people don't think of right away, right? When you're a kid, oh, I'm going to learn to play the guitar. They don't necessarily pick up the bass right away. So yes, yes. Bass is a background instrument. It's it's an accompanying instrument. And (laughs) and in reality, it's the bridge between the drums and the rest of the band. It's the part rhythm and part melody. 
but we I was a got the fre- summer before freshman year of high school. My old best friend Mike, his dad bought a guitar and a bass from Sears or Montgomery Wards uh, <laughs> and brought them home. They were like twenty bucks each, and Mike knew how to play a G on guitar, and and so I was the bass player. So I played bass, and we learned we taught ourselves down on the corner by Creedence Clearwater Revival, and it's that one where the guitar and bass go boom, 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 boom. and we we did we played it, and we were shocked that we sounded just like the record. So I was a bass player for life at that moment. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, but it, but you're right. It's it's a it's an instrument that it, unless you're Victor Wooten or Stanley Clark. It's an instrument that has to be with an ensemble to help the ensemble sound better. And mm. that's the role of a bass. You know. Can I ask, and, you know, you what of your bass playing influences were you kind of like thinking towards when you started playing Counting Crows? Like, were you thinking about those like Fairport Convention bass lines or was there like kind of what was inspiring you from your end? Yes. Bringing that to the songs. Good question, because the, the inspirations bleed through no matter what you do. And since it was the, we were still a product of the late 80s. And it was 1990, actually, when I first uh, got in with everybody, when they put the first band together, uh, like late, I think the fall of 90. So our, our early demos sound like R.E.M. Uh, they're, they're a little more polished mm. and a lot of reverb on the guitars and things. And it sounds like the late 80s, if, if you heard the the, the demos. Yeah, like good, good late '80s music, but very late '80s music. Yes, yes, good and and, and right at the cusp of the '90s music, and and it was T Bone Burnett, our first producer, that broke us down and said, "Matt, I, I want you to get rid of your fretless bass." Although I played it on Mr. Jones and a couple other things, but I want you to buy a vintage bass over there on Sunset Boulevard and see if it has original strings from the 1960s, and that's the bass I want you to play on this record. And and the way mm. he described that made me think of playing differently. I, I know what he was saying. And that was to, to, to play like Fairport Convention, play like Van Morrison's bass player. And, mm. you know, like think of where I'm, every note is important, not, not the tone as much or the, uh, like with a fretless bass, you kind of make it sing and swim. And, and I just thought of bass playing differently. I, I, he made me a songwriter's bass player, T-Bone Burnett. Mm. So that 70s sort of songwritery vibe yes. was kind of, yeah. Yes. Can I ask, yes. was, was that the bass you played on the first tour? Because I was noticing there was a really interesting looking bass you were playing. I was watching like a, a old show from like Rome 94 yesterday. Mm-hmm. And there's like a symbol on. And I was curious what that symbol yes. was. And I thought maybe it was a custom thing, but maybe it was just the bass you found on, on Sunset. No, I know the exact one you're talking about. No, that was one of more, my more high-tech basses. That was a, fret, a fretless Music Man Stingray. And the the stick, it's a sticker. I still have that bass. And the sticker is called a Shri Chakra. And it's a, it, it's a symbol. It's a, I don't know exactly what the history of a Shri Chakra is, but I just really love the way it looked, you know, so I put it on. It did look very cool. Yeah, thanks. That's yeah. What I, was, yeah. <laughs> I was like picking through things. It was like it's awesome. Uh, Chris, yeah. when he was talking, he, he was talking about the producer. Did you have? Because I saw some of your pre uh, questions. Did you have any other questions related to the making of the first album? Because he was kind of touching on that. Yeah, no. Let's. I mean, kind of. Let's discuss. I mean, like, what was sort of? Tell us maybe a little bit about that process of making the first record. Like, we you know, you yes. guys like, went into a house, but I'm always curious. Yes. That's got to be. There's got to be a lot of like, I don't know, fun stories from like living in a oh, house yeah. with everyone together for. That yes, it was. Oh, yeah, man, it, it was awesome. We rented this house in L.A. We're all from the Bay Area, living in the Bay Area. So we're just drive down to L.A., road trip. 
and we're living in this sort of McMansion in, in the Hollywood Hills. Had an elevator, so we had to play with the elevator. All of us. and uh, and the the making of that record made musicians out of all of us. And it was the producer that did it, T Bone Burnett. He said, "Your demo sounds like a record. Now we're going to make a record that sounds like a demo." And he stripped down the reverb. He took away all the effects. He made me play an older bass, and. And the rec- that record, that first record, I'm so proud of that record because it has a silence to it. it if you, like the beginning of, of the first song around here on, on August and everything after, it comes out of silence and fades in. And the whole record has a silence. And I'm, I'm really thrilled with the way T-Bone, T-Bone provided a, like a flagpole and had us all point to that pole and say, here's what we're going to sound like. Here's what we're going to do. He also told me there should be no ordinary moments on a record. There's... There was, for example, the chorus of A Murder of One is eighth notes on bass. It's just bum, 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 bum. And I played it, and T-Bone said, it sounds good, but make that the only time you do that on this record. You don't want to just start doing eighth notes and not making things. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. And he's right. He And, and because he said that, I, that's what I did. I didn't do eighth notes anywhere else, you know. So that record's a special record. You know? and the I guess, and that's actually really interesting way to think about, like, no – because there kind of aren't any ordinary moments on that record. It's sort of mm-hmm. just, I don't know, that as we because we've done, part of our podcast, we've kind of done sort of discussions of at least the first two records. We're going to do all of them eventually. But it's such a hard record to, to sort of break down because all of the songs are so specific and it's kind of special in their own way. And I think mm-hmm. that kind of comes back to it. And it's there's no ordinary moments. There's no like, ah, that one's just kind of like, flat and it kind of goes through all of them have these like special unique things about the, the songs uh-huh. in them yes right yeah. so it's interesting you mentioned murder of one because i believe and i'll bring up some other ones i went through and tried to part was my memory but then i went through the albums and i and i tried to designate or note what songs you actually uh got uh, co-writing credit for and i think murder of one was one of those Yes. And one thing. One thing I've never asked a, a professional musician uh, who's published uh, work is, what's the threshold sometimes to getting writing credit? Because obviously, on other songs, you're contributing or adding your little flair. I mean, it's not like mm-hmm. Adam is writing every note of every instrument. So, uh-huh. what what sometimes makes that threshold, like you know, and what did you bring to Murder of One, for instance? Y- yes, very good. Well, the, I think there are at least three different publishing uh, separations. One is mechanical royalties and. Uh, I'm not not by no means an expert. I'm just a lucky fool who plays bass. (laughs) But uh, I know that the way Adam ran things, and a lot of bands do this, we were recommended this by our our, our people around us, that if somebody's in the room while he's composing, whether or not we even make a suggestion that he accepts, we'll get a songwriting credit on that because we might have said something that made him think of a chord. So he's very generous in that way. And I know Murder One, though, I actually helped write chords. You know, it was Adam and Dave Bryson and I that just went down uh, to Dave's studio in, up in Oakland and just wrote that one afternoon. Uh, so that was more hands-on. There's also, uh, you get on in on publishing by being the player on that song. So since I play bass on those songs, I get a, a publishing credit uh, and income and whatever. Uh, and I don't know. There's a, there's another one, but uh, anyway, I'm, as yeah. I said, I'm a lucky fool. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. I, maybe yeah. as we go along, there's some songs I'll either mention that you either had writing credit for, and you can mention something, or some particularly memorable, and then or you could add your own. I I know that in Ghost Train, I I find that there's uh, some memorable bass 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 lines in there. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's a fretless bass. That's that swimmy sound that I really love. And so T-Bone let me play that on that one. And, and also uh, Mr. Jones is a fretless bass. And But uh, yeah, uh, a Ghost Train's a, a really beautiful song. And uh, we we're all fans of Adam. Adam would come and bang out something on the piano and you could hear the whole band in his piano. You know, and mm-hmm. he, he's a songwriter like Burt Bacharach or something. And and he's one of those guys that once a week he just has he lays a golden egg and we all have to figure out how to play it. You know, it, it, it's it's it, a songwriter is something that you're born to to do. And mm. uh, the reason bands don't last is because they don't have a real songwriter in them necessarily. I mean, there's many ways for bands to break up, but you can tell that bands that started to age over time, their songs got more mediocre, you know, and I don't Mm. see that happening with Adam and and the guys he's getting just in a way deeper and more ill, which, which I admire, you know, Mm. I mean, without being an ill person, his songs are just more like, like troubled, which I admire in in the modern counting crows catalog. You know, Mm. Yeah, one thing I was going to say when I introduced you was that, um, and it's and it's part of the aging process, right? It's actually some things that I studied that if you look at officially, if Counting Crows are are I don't know thirty two, thirty three years old, now we're at a point that wow, if you were in the band fifteen years, that's less less than half, right, of the years yes. of existence. But that yeah. said, I mean, first of all, it's fifteen years is still a long time, but you you know they've only it depends how you count the covers album and they have an EP and stuff, but I guess you could. You know, at the very least, there's six studio albums, but you were there for four of those, four of those six. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess they're their most popular four, I guess, by sales, uh, you could argue. Uh, is and, and so that's why we have so much to talk about. But but in the um, is was the so the first house on the hill was in the Bay Area, where the oh, and that's what I was gonna say. I think the also the only four albums that they recorded in houses, I think after you were no longer with the band, they recorded. Uh, not in houses anymore. I think so. Yeah, they went to studios. Yeah. Yeah. Were the other three in the L.A. area? The other three houses? Uh, Yeah. In in fact, all of them were in L.A. Uh, I think the house that Adam might have referred to up in Berkeley was where we rehearsed and and founded our band. That's on, uh, there's a famous line down on Virginia and La Loma, which which is in Ghost Train, I think. And that's an intersection in Northburg. That's where the house was. Okay. uh, and so, yeah, we all we did them all in houses. T Bone Burnett got us onto that because he said that recording studios reek of despair. So okay. <laughs> we all said, "Yeah, let's rent a house." You know, <laughs> so, and each house was different, right? Each each of yeah. the four houses was different. So yeah, yeah, and yeah. The houses and they did might some, have some character. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they had to have some character. You know, the the second record we did, recovering the satellites, was done in an awesome house. It was like a a giant version of a, a California craftsman house. I don't know the architect, but it's, it's somebody big. And uh, it was a beautiful house. You know, they did a MTV did a thing on us there where they interviewed us in, in that house. And, and it, you can see a lot of it. And that was awesome. You know, I've seen clips on that. And maybe Chris can say there's rumors that that, that that recording of that will be released sometime in the future, Matt. So, so you might. Yeah. They're, they're, I've heard about, HBO possibly doing a documentary. I, yes. I wasn't even aware of that until I listened to your podcast, which is, okay. which is <laughs> so. but yeah, at least there, I mean, because it, it's a beautiful, it's interesting because of that footage. I feel like whenever I think about the band recording, I think about that because there was so much. I feel like I don't think there were, was video of any of the other three. I think it's a lot of recovering the satellites video when I think of the band in a house knocking out a yes. record. 
yes, the, I don't remember any video being shot in any of the other houses, or at least not much at all. You know, God, imagine now if those records were done with iPhones. Everyone's got an iPhone. It would have been awesome. <laughs> every, every, everyone on YouTube. <laughs> yes. You know, one thing I would ask about the early days or even now, obviously, like when you're on a... Oh, and one thing I didn't mention to you, actually, is I did... Well, now I'm only talking to you through a, through a computer screen, but I actually did meet you once for 60 seconds. It was at, I think it was the premiere, actually, but when you did the World Cafe in Philadelphia for the Hard Candy release. Uh-huh. And uh, you did like four songs in the, I think it was Tower Records. I was not able to attend that because I think it was only a couple hundred fans and I wasn't there early enough. But after that, if you bought a copy, you could wait in line to have it signed. And I met you there. And then I also loitered around a bit and then the band actually came. And I mean, it just, it, it, it also reminds me of what Adam would talk about because Adam was a music lover. You guys are all music lovers. But after the, 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 the CD signing, a few of you um, went and shopped for CDs and you were <laughs> hanging around just looking at music because you would like music. So you, I don't think I said, or maybe I just waved to Adam or said hi, but I didn't actually talk to him. But you and Dave, I actually went and, and talked to. So anyway, I remember you being very approachable and you answered a few of my questions and, and then I just didn't want to bother you anymore and I went on my way. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy my reputation is intact and I was polite. <laughs> <laughs> but but did, so, so obviously an event like that where fans went or at a concert, I know, especially back then, I think it was after the concerts, uh, the bands would meet the fans. But but given how popular Counting Crows was, when you were not on tour or where you were back at home in your real life, did, did you, and even maybe years after you left, do did people, you know, recognize you as being the bass player of Counting Crows? From no, videos or whatever? no, no, uh, you know, I, I changed. I gained some weight. I, I gained, uh, uh, my, my hair went gray. I got a haircut. I didn't look like I did in the, you know, when I turned, I think, 42, 43 I just started to morph, you know, so I wasn't the same. I just didn't look the same. You know, I did get recognized in the in the 90s, you know, the mid 90s. And and I was always thrilled. I was also a very awkward celebrity to talk to Counting Crows fans. I, I, I was kind of hyper and embarrassed if they recognized me. And I'm kind of an introvert, I guess, you know, and uh, I had to learn how to kind of be cool like the teenagers if they were big fans i gotta kind of act like counting crows bass player i'm happy to meet you not bum them out you know <laughs> being a geek you know <laughs> so. but it's funny you said that because i do think that most i don't want to say most celebrity because it depends what you're famous for but things like music and movies and i guess even sports and i'm thinking other parts of popular american culture it only it usually happens between age you know 18 and 35 so, and, and that's certainly usually where the height of the popularity is, no matter what your craft. I mean, there's some, you know, rare examples, maybe Tom Cruise became, you know, was more, even more popular in his forties or something, but it is mm -hmm. weird though. Cause then people then look back, you know, right. At, you know, you're 50 or whatever. And then you look back. So not only was that an exciting time and probably it, it was all a blur, but it's also a time when you're still kind of finding yourself right in, in, yeah. in some ways. So yeah. I don't know. Do you ever do you think back a lot, a lot about that or, or just things you might have yeah. done differently? And that doesn't necessarily even be have to do with the actual music or the band. Just, just mm -hmm. you know, no, you mean being that, that age. And, yeah, I don't, yeah, I, I or, don't know. What you mean. Yeah. No, good question. I mean, I, I got I got married at 33 
And that was right after we recorded Recovering the Satellites. And I look at okay. marriage as the, be- the beginning of the second half of my life. You know, it was Art Garfunkel that said, the birth of your first child is the first day of the second half of your life. And in a way, getting married to me was that. It was like now I have a person who's, who's at home and they're thinking about me and I, I like to get back to them. When kids came, it got a lot harder a lot worse that I'm missing out on stuff. And I hung on as long as I could. But but I felt like childhood ended when I got married, you know. And so I was, I was a 33-year-old child. <laughs> well, well that, you know, in some ways that fit, maybe not for most musicians, but that fits, you know, some people that try to easily like look at the life course and look at, uh, at, at, at like clear mathematical, you know, they would, some people call a young adult 20 to 35, right? And then the yeah. 35 to 50 would be kind of middle age or old or, you know, mid adult. Yeah. So you, you yeah. timed that perfectly, right? You're the 20 to 35 <laughs> and then you, you yeah, right. like that. <laughs> it was an accident. Chris, yeah. Chris did you have a, a next question? Well, sure. I'd love to. I'd love to talk about. So, obviously, the band made a lot of amazing records, but a lot of the reputation of the band is how incredible y'all were live for so long, continue to be. Mm-hmm. And I'm there's something. Obviously, the, the the band has this sort of sui generis way of improvising, right? The sort of what fans, I guess, called alts, right? But that 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 thing of sort of following a direction in the middle of song specifically a lot of times you know like murder of one and and round here mm-hmm. and i was curious about sort of the development of that like there's the there's the big story of adam going like I, we're not going to play this the same way every night so just kind of follow me on this but mm-hmm. you know kind of what was that like because you're kind of following and kind of playing a new song in this old like i'm just kind of curious from your perspective what it was like to figure out how to do those things because by the end of the first tour there's these you know 11 minute versions of round here and 15 minutes of murder of one and you guys are just flying the whole way through you yeah. know <laughs> right yes I, I remember adam early on started to to scat and improvise on on the songs in the middle sections and if we and i remember early on a lot of people kind of wouldn't listen to him or they kind of play their part and he had to scold the band at that early in those early days to go with them and so it was something that was just trial and error over years that they got we all got better with over time and um and because he's really good at improvising adam's a really good musician he's not just a great songwriter but he like for example the solo to long december is Dan, it's a three-note solo, just da 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 Adam sung that to Dan, because Dan was having trouble trying to come up with a solo, and Adam just went and sung it and played air guitar, and so Dan taught himself that, and that's the solo of A Long December. So Adam, Adam's, a, without, without being academic or, or ever going to school, he's a really natural musician and knows how to, how to improvise over things with his voice. And uh, so we had to all kind of rise up to that level, you know, and, and not at least not disappoint him. You know, when he goes off a cliff, <laughs> he wants us to catch him, you know. And, but <laughs> it was probably a fun challenge, too, right? It, it just yeah. maybe maybe to keep you on your toes a little bit during the show. Right. Instead yeah. of just playing the same way. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. The, the band is a very it's a very bored band because. Playing, uh, at the, the, I remember in the '90s, Adam would often avoid playing Mr. Jones just because he was so pissed off having to play Mr. Jones so many times, and so 
he, to try to break out of that box. Touring is a lot, a lot like being in prison. You, you just have to do the same thing every day. You resort to lifting weights in the hotel and you, you, you have to like, just do the same things. So the band started to really, to Adam leading us, started to try to reinvent our, our tours, you know, to, to stop from going crazy, you know, Rock music by nature is is built on parts. You learn, you play a bass part, and you just repeat that stupid bass part. And we tried to avoid that at every corner. Stop, stop playing parts. You know. Mm. Yeah. No, I always, I, I, I get that. As I said, I that's why I empathize with with either comedians or as as I said, even a teacher. <laughs> even if I know like what joke or what thing the students love to hear every time. Going through it every time the same way, you just feel like that. Yeah, you want to change it up a little bit. Yeah, and keep yourself yeah. motivated. Uh, yeah, those improvisations out. that are memorable to you, or that you, you did a lot, where you were like, "I loved every time we did this in Round Here or Murder of One." Or yeah, mur- well, so the Murder of One. You just said that there. I remember the Murder of One was kind of magical because it was such an explosive chorus, and I remember being in Scotland. I think it was Glasgow. And in Scotland, the gigs are really wild because I, I mm. guess the people are really drunk or something, but they love their rock and roll. And they start stomping and the whole venue is like shaking from the stomping. And uh, I remember watching that audience lift up uh, on the outro chorus of Murder One because of a long buildup and all this, the, the suspense. And Adam just launched us into that outro chorus and the place erupted. And that was a magical moment. You know, I can't tell you what year exactly. Maybe it was around the mid '90s. You know, 90, okay. Yeah. RTS yeah. recovering the satellites. You think, or, or I'm curious to go back good and try question. to find this now. Actually, yeah, good question. I think it was after recovering the satellites was out, so we were touring that record, okay. and yeah, yeah. So no, it, maybe, it, maybe before it was probably like '95. Could have been '94 and okay. Yeah. Okay. As, as someone that just so, sh- uh, saw a couple shows at uh, Cannon Crows in England last year for the first time, it, it's still like that. The, the, crowd, the crowds are so much more enthusiastic. And I don't think it's, it's, it's just the alcohol because a lot of Americans get drunk at those crow shows, but they also are playing with their phone and talking to people next to them. Yeah. It's just that it, over in the UK, they get more into it and they... Yeah, I, I'm not surprised that that and they kind of know when the magic part they get into they 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 know when the magic parts are and show their approval of, of those yeah. parts. So awesome. it, it's still it's still that way. Were they, yeah. kind of related to Chris' question? I, were there two or three songs that you love playing live? Now it might have been because you love the song, or just um, maybe you didn't play it enough. So when you did, or it was just yeah, was there yeah. any that you love to see on the set list? Gosh, good question. Um, you know, I I, I think of our our heyday of the first two albums and the tour of the first two albums. And after that, we started to get a little older. We are started getting in, in, into our middle age. You could say after 35, like, like yeah. I think we, and that's kind of a different era of counting crows to me. So after like 99, right around 99. And so, before that, those first two records are just loaded with great songs. And in my personal opinion, the ones that I was on after after the recovering the satellites, they have jewels on them, like real gems. But not not every moment is is magical like those first two records. And so, like there's a song Saint Robinson and his Cadillac Dream. That's a magical mm. song to me. Mm. Uh, there's a few. There's there's a one that's like Burt Bacharach. Thought I might get a rocket ride. 
Oh, all my friends. All oh, my just, friends. I was just like, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. See, you guys are fans. All my friends. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So give us a prompt, you know. <laughs> yes, yes. That's a that's a magical song. You know that that's like that's the level of 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 to me, Burt Bacharach or, or Jimmy Webb. You know, and they're they're a little more rare after the second record, in in my opinion. You know. But I'm sorry, Eric. What was your original question? Oh, it was just—it was just that there were there certain songs. And by the way, those two—I think those two were always great live. So those could have been St. Robert. But I said, was there like two or three songs that you, when you saw it on the set list, you're like, oh, great, I love playing this song live. Yes, you know, the, those so. two are good examples of them. The, the, <laughs> if if it was from the first couple of records, anything. I, I'd anything. Be happy okay. With. Yes, I loved Anna Begins. I love playing Anna Begins hmm. because uh, the chorus was such a release. It's, it's a it goes to a major feel. And it's the Dave Bryson's guitar is so beautiful, and uh, I I love that playing Anna Begins live. I love playing Omaha live. Oh, there was a moment actually when we after we made the record, uh, a record is like going into a microscope. You're 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 going into this thing and all your little parts. You so all of us went through that, and our first rehearsal after the record, we went back up to the little house in North Berkeley. And we all played Omaha, and we were laughing because we sounded just like the record. <laughs> we couldn't believe it. <laughs> so, it's because everyone knew their parts so well, you know. And, uh, I mean, Anna Begins is an interesting one because that's one that that of course the sound changed. Uh, the live version, yeah, uh, right. It was a little harder, I guess, a little more guitar-y. Yeah, but you obviously still love playing it alive. I think the it, it, both versions are great. Uh, so yeah. Yeah, true. You know, no. Adam's a big Adam and Dave Emmergluck and I were all fanatics of a fellow named Richard Thompson. Do you have you mm-hmm. ever heard of Richard Thompson? He's he's under the mm-hmm. radar. That's that's all right. Uh, you, you know, of course, he he uh, co-founded Fairport Convention uh, with his first members, and he went on to become a solo artist. And he has two incarnations. One of them is solo acoustic, and the other is with an electric band. And they're always awesome because he's such a great musician. And Adam would kind of Adam mirrored Richard a little bit in having acoustic sets and quiet quieter songs mixed with uh, more raucous versions, you know. I'm actually curious, how did you like doing the, sort of skipping ahead and curious to go back to the Recovering the Satellites recording, but, you know, doing the prep and doing all those acoustic sets to do MTV um, story, uh, sorry, VH1 storytellers, like, did you like that process of, like, rearranging all the songs to be acoustic or was that interesting or yeah, fun? I, I enjoyed yeah. it. Not everyone was happy about that. Our drummer, Steve, was a very rock and roll drummer and he didn't like acoustic feeling things, which all of us kind of argued with him over. And uh, and also what, what Adam t- told the guys in the band, there were a couple of them that had trouble kind of reinventing their parts or their on their instruments for an acoustic feel. They just played the same parts on an acoustic instrument. And Adam had to explain you know, don't just do, don't just unplug and play what you play, you know, mm. try to get into this new feel. And uh, it, it involves having really good antenna as a musician to, to reinvent a song like that, you know. Yeah, Was there no, one of that, those rearrangements that you really liked of those acoustic songs where you were like, oh, this acoustic version is like, is great? Good question. Um, I mean, I saw Anna. Be- I think of Anna Begins immediately when you say that mm. we did an acoustic version, but it's very similar to the electric, just quieter. The, the I mean, it's there's not a lot of re 
the, uh, there wasn't like a full reinventing into the acoustic sets, you know. What do you think, Chris? I'm almost I'm, now. I'm just I should have prepared for that question. I almost think Matt's work in Angels of the Silences stands out mm. for the acoustic version. I don't know if you remember how much you remember of that, Matt. But, uh, uh, yeah, I agree there. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I, I don't remember a whole lot on it. Angels of the Silences. I probably played an acoustic bass on that. Yeah. Uh, I play. A, yes, I never did upright on that. I, think I don't so. think unless you found something. Or yeah, I could. It. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's Angel of the Silences. It was kind of a punk song. Charlie came up with the music to that, and Adam sung the song over it. And uh, it was a high energy song, so acoustic version of that was pretty cool, you know. But yeah, I don't have strong memories of it. For some reason, the bass sticks out with me again, just just from a memory. Now, it, I just want this is told, just some of this is going to be random, just to tie off what you did before. Like, like when you mentioned this desert life, you're saying in you know kind of off the cuff that that uh, St. Robinson and all my friends and actually those might be my two favorite songs they or I, I think they're also they're both special but interestingly you have writing credit to a song on Desert Life that is one of the fans favorites that I we Chris and I try to figure out we think it's the longest drought where it hasn't been played, but maybe it'll come back soon, which is actually Amy hit, Amy hit the atmosphere. Oh, that's a great song. That's one of those gems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I played upright bass on that one, and that's a great song, you know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why they're not playing it live. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it, it might come back. Sometimes I think, you know, that yeah, he'll remember it or someone will mention it. And, and Yeah. Uh, but yeah. we think that hasn't been played since actually the original, when the album was released, uh, that tour, the original tour. So. Wow. Wow, I wonder why Adam probably doesn't like it. You know, I don't know, don't know yeah, why, or maybe <laughs> just just forgot it or whatever. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Chris, did you uh, did did you have? Um, I mean, I have, I have sorts of all, all sorts of. Yeah, we have uh, all sorts of questions, but I mean, well, one thing. Did, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna about this about the one last thing about the house on the hill, and I think you even mentioned it in another interview when the second three houses on the hill or whatever were all in the LA area. I know that you could go home and sleep there, but did you ever sleep actually sometimes also in the recording house? Yeah. The let's see the the first record. Uh, I wasn't married yet. I wasn't living in LA. The second. One recovering the satellites. I also was living in that house, so I live in the first two houses. Okay. And in the third one, I had a home and a family, a wife at home, not a family yet, or not kids yet. And so I did sleep there if I was sleep deprived. There was a nap room, you know, that I'd go <laughs> sleep in. So there was a some strange things happened in that house. I honestly I can't tell you what what was the record that we made in the, after recovering the satellites. I can't. It, it's strange. Well, I can't. Desert Hard Life. Candy. This desert, oh, they, desert Life is there. Sorry, Desert Life. Okay, okay Desert Life. And then Hard right. Candy number four. Yeah, uh, number four. Thank you. Desert Life. And so I remember making that record had some incredible coincidences. Uh, Charlie, our keyboardist, is very scientific. He's a fan of science and statistics and and even astronomy. And uh, and we we had to figure out the chances of this happening. I was going to buy a bass guitar that's called a Paisley bass. It's made in the late '60s. It's a vintage bass, Fender Paisley bass, because it has a Paisley, a pink Paisley uh, finish on it. And I didn't know if I was whether to buy it or not. And then Bill Thompson, who passed away, he was our our man, um, our tech uh, guy. He he did all the guitars with us on all the records, uh, or the second one on. And I was taking a nap in that nap room and Bill came and said, there's a guy calling from a guitar shop about this Paisley bass. So I went out into the hallway and there's a 
fa- uh, what's it called? A grandfather a clock, those big clocks, grandfather clock, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And on the face, it says Matt Paisley. And, and so I'm calling, picking up the phone right near this clock that the, I guess the brand of the clock was Matt Paisley. And I, I was so freaked out about that. And I went down and the band's like laughing and going, why do you worry about this stuff? But I, me and Charlie got together because I was thinking it's really an unusual coincidence. And Charlie had a number and it was big of how that could not have happened. <laughs> you know, so we, <laughs> those are the kind of things we'd, we'd go through, you know. Did yeah. you get I'm the not, bass? Yes, I bought the bass. Yes. Right. <laughs> and was it a good? Did you end up using it for a while? Was it? Was I did. It meant fact, to be. Yes, it was meant to be. In fact, when we t- we did some shows with the Who, and I played my Paisley bass opening for the Who. I'm happy to say. <laughs> you know? That's actually one thing I wanted to ask about. Like, what was it like? Um, any stories from, from <laughs> opening for like the Stones and the Who, and playing some of those bigger shows? With yeah, because obviously with the Stones, it was like actual stadiums, right? It was like giant stadiums. Yeah, yeah they sure, they were they were, and the, the that was on our first record. Actually, we did ten or twelve shows with the Stones on their Voodoo Lounge tour, and uh, I remember sound checking in the arenas, and they would say, "Okay, give me some bass guitar." This is in the afternoon when you, when they're trying to get all the mic lines levels and the volumes, and I'd play a bass note, and eighty thousand chairs are pointing at me empty chairs that are acting like little mirrors and i would hear my bass come back a couple of seconds later and it was the weirdest effect and standing on a stage of a stadium and doing that and opening for the stones including a show we did later in vienna back in 03 the way the weather like a storm would come and then it would clear up it, it was it, it felt like doing it felt like god was there to, to, to with your with you to do your show cuz the, there's so many people gathered in one place and the stones were magnificent but i was more excited about opening for the who cuz i'm i'm a who fanatic but opening for those the the stones on those shows made me a stones fan but I'll tell you, opening for the Who was even more exciting for me because I love the Who. Did you get to meet those guys? And yeah, yeah, we met we met them briefly. They're they're very aloof, but they're very polite. Uh, Emmerich <laughs> and I were standing at the stage door w- before they were going on, and Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey just kind of walked over to us and just sat there. And Pete Townsend just leaned on a on a road case and looked at us both. And he's there with his beautiful <laughs> giant nose, and he's looking at me and Dave. And we just said hi, and they 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 shook our hands and just walked on stage and started their show. And that that, that was like a couple of gods, you know. <laughs> it was awesome, you know. <laughs> for, 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 I mean, it is funny how that turned, right? Because to me, I'd rather meet you, right, than, than Pete Townsend. But that's just because I'm a Cruise fan, so I know that they've had. I know that they're legends, but the, the, yeah. the person just. Given your personality, I know you joked uh, you're kind of shy and reclusive as a teenager, which I think you know a lot of a lot of people are. Mm. But but I noticed on some of the and I don't watch as many of the. Chris is our live expert, but I have seen some of the earlier live shows, and it was interesting that you and uh, Dave, because of the makeup of the band, were asked to be more front and center. You know, even with some, you know, to get the crowd going or to show off a little bit of the guitar, and then later. Mm. You know, of course, as Emmy and, and, and Dan were there, uh, you know, maybe you more in the back and, and not as many as those front and center guitar solos. Personality wise, which did you prefer? I mean, it was probably fun to experience both. But yeah. do you have any comment on that? Uh, you mean uh, 
the the pressure of like having to act like I'm I'm a rock star or something. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yes. It kind of made yes. me laugh a little bit. Uh, yes, it, because it, later, it, of course, you were you were back, you know, with Charlie and and the drummer in the back. Yes, I was happy to go back there because it was so <laughs> so cringy to me because I I never like like I I've, I felt fat my whole life. You know, I'm 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 kind of fat now, but I was I wasn't really fat then. I've always been a little a little bit fat. I've never been really skinny, but I've always been very self conscious of my body image. And to go, I, I was told. Adam said, you know, look like you're into it, you know, especially on my solo of Children in Bloom. There's a a moment like go stand in front of the stage, put your foot on the monitor and be a rock star. And uh, and I did it. But every time I hated it, I really hated it. I I think you did it well. And that's that's why I asked the question is because my instinct and I feel the same about Dave, too. uh, I'd love to ask him about it at some point, because obviously he was the only guitar player in the beginning and then also had a lot more. uh, And then the current tour, they joked about that because. Was it Dan was out for a little bit sick, so Dave mm-hmm. had a kind of quote unquote be lead guitar a little bit. But I, I just in my impression uh, as a fan watching for all these decades is that uh, you and uh, Dan didn't mind you know doing that in the front, but it's not as much of your personality. So you were more than happy to just kind of hang out and do your part in, in the back too. So. Yes, yeah, yeah. When in fact when. Emmerglick joined, and now we become like a way bigger band. I, I I was very happy to have my own riser back there with the drums and uh, just play with Ben and Jim Bogus and Charlie on my left. And I was I was right at home there. I was at peace. <laughs> I could just play bass and try to look cool, you know, in case anyone's looking. But I'm not trying to get attention, you know. I hate hated doing that. Yeah. yeah, and that was a very '90s thing, of course, to be you know the, the guitar solos in the in in the front, uh, maybe a, yes. a holdover from the '80s and mm-hmm. '70s, I guess. Yes. too. but definitely. Just because you mentioned it up, and I'll go right to Chris. Is do you have a? I, I think for kind of hardcore fans, I, I do think Children of in Bloom come comes across as one of your your you know performance, I guess, that stands out or people say, oh, that's great work on Children in Bloom. Do you have a comment or do you think that's warranted or not? Do you have anything about that song? I'm proud of that bass part because it's very... It's very melodious. It's not like a normal bass. It's not behaving like a bass guitar on the chorus. It's acting like maybe a synthesizer, or it's doing something that another instrument probably should do. So I've I've enjoyed that bass part because of that. But the bass part I'm most proud of is one of the last things I recorded with the band, and that's "Accidentally in Love" for Shrek Two. Okay. That's a very hard bass part because it's a mixture of legato and staccato, meaning long held out notes and then just short little uh, notes and you have to play it exactly one way so i'm really proud of that bass part hmm. it's a it's a hard bass part also around here i'm i'm really happy with because I, I we were recording and i was told go go think of a bass part that's not normal for around here and i actually didn't do anything i just waited until i, I was sitting in the in the studio and they were working with me and I just started to play what what play off of Adam's voice, and that became the bass part of Round Here. And I'm I'm really thrilled with that bass part too. It's not it's not a normal bass part. Mm-hmm. And you got a, a Grammy nomination for that accident. So it's not just that an you Oscar. got a, a an Oscar. Oscar. Sorry, an Oscar nomination. So it's not just that in that you had writing credit, but but you that you're actually very proud of. Uh, you're, you're saying it's maybe much more difficult than it would appear that or much yes. more complicated yes exactly exactly yeah and i actually wrote part of that song there's a i can tell you exactly a, a moment <laughs> is accidentally and dun, dun, 
that that is all me. I wrote that. (laughs) So no, no one can say I didn't write that. (laughs) So Chris, before I uh, cut you off, Chris. No, I was saying, but it's actually the one interesting thing to talk about there is sort of those pieces. I'm actually kind of curious because we we did a deep dive into recovering the satellites Mm. a a month or so ago, and there's a lot of parts in there that are kind of Beatlesy, for lack of a better term. And I know you're a big Beatles fan. You've got a writing credits on on Catapult and I'm Not Sleeping. Was that I was just kind of curious if that if if you were part of trying to bring those types of sounds to to that record because it is noticeable when you really sort of sit down and, and break those songs down. Yeah, uh, there were like even though I didn't play maybe strings or, or synthesizers, I know that by being around, there were things maybe I suggested to Charlie or or anybody that I'm sure were inspired by Beatles. I mean, all, all the the whole band loves the Beatles, you know. So mm. I, I can't claim any credit, but. Yeah, I also sense a Beatles influence in that on that record, you know, with the strings as well, you know. As someone who you, you said you love that first record and you appreciate it, um, but I know you said that maybe your second favorite record is the second one. And how much fun or interesting or your thoughts, I, I'm guessing it's the same as the whole band, about having that record be such a different sound. I mean, still keep, keep in some ways the Count of Crow sound, but... Mm. Like, I love Catapult. I love that you got writing credit. It's just one of my favorite songs. And, it, mm-hmm. and then it kicks off that second record. And it's so different than anything that came before, even though I love everything before. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you have any, yeah, what would you yeah. like comment on that? Yeah, yeah I, I remember Adam wanted that second record to be a juiced up version of the band. He wanted us to to just juice everything up, you know. And we, so we got Dan Vickery to join and, uh, as a lead guitarist and Dan added a little bit of an of an Americana country feeling, you know. The beauty of the first record, though, is that it's not it's it's like Neil Young's Harvest. That, that's which mm. one of the great records in in my life. Uh, I think that's Neil's first record. Uh, it's it's once it's trying to be country, but it's not. You can't say that it's a country record. It doesn't sound like that at all. But yeah. it fools you into thinking it might be, and that it's a great illusion, you know. Uh, it's just a songwriter's record, you know, Neil Harvest and the first Counting Crows record. The second one, by juicing things up, I feel like we took a risk, but it, it still paid off. That record is is really well done, you know, uh, yeah. and the strength is in the songwriting. Uh, again, it's the having a great songwriter uh, will keep the quality level high, you know, because you yeah. could sing lady madonna at a campfire on an acoustic guitar and it would still sound like lady madonna and that's the strength of a great song so we can make a country version of a counting crow song and if it's a good song it's still a good song yeah i think and we talk i think that record really holds up and feels very current both sort of sonically in part because i think you know the 20 year rule everything's throwing back to the 90s but also songs about feeling like disconnected from the world are very on topic for the last three years of everyone's lives <laughs> you know like <laughs> yeah yeah i feel i feel distant and i feel like i'm changing in this weird space it's yeah. fairly yeah it, it's on brand it, it, yeah. It, it, yeah yeah just because i didn't want to forget if you've listened to any of the podcast uh, a couple of the times we had a guest and we interviewed uh jeff harkness who who is kind of trying to act as a canon cruise historian we like to joke with yes him and i heard him's he gets, voice yes i listened to that yes uh, yeah. all right and I think so I heard he, you. 
And he submitted one question, which was that when you change drummers, particularly from Steve to Ben, and of course you were there in that brief period where you played with Jim as well. I said, I remember because I got to see a lot of shows at the Hard Candy Tour. And that's Mm -hmm. when you and Jim were there in that little crossover period. Mm -hmm. But particularly when you went from Steve to Ben, how did that change the the band's sound, either playing or recording or songwriting? You know, it doesn't have to be about personality, but just, you know, changing drummers does change things. Uh, yes. So. Yes. I, I remember Ben stood out. Uh, I love Steve. I love Steve Bowman. All of us did. Uh, he was a he was a high tech drummer. He was like a Peter Gabriel drummer. You know, he and he knew how to the way he sat at his kit, his body language was just he really knew what he was doing. You know, so he's a great musician. When Ben joined, the the feel of Ben's beat was different. It felt more natural in a way to play bass to. Uh, I remember Murder of One chorus. The way Ben's where he put his snare and the the way Ben's beat felt, it kind of excited me there in that department. You know, hmm. uh, I'm fans of them both, but they're so different. That's like apples and oranges. You know. Hmm. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And then what about yeah, that, that transition to Jim? Like, what was the difference with, with Jim versus Ben? Jim's Jim is probably my favorite drummer. In fact, he is. Jim's my favorite drummer because he he's the blend of everything. He had Steve Bowman's skill and Ben's feel, and could play anything. He's a natural musician and a really accomplished drummer. And so I, we only recorded one song together, and it got us all Oscar nominations. That was accidentally a little <laughs> and, and I feel like Jim's a large part of that because I could really tuck into his drums. He brought out the best bass player in me in the studio. And uh, so J- Jim's my favorite drummer of that band. Uh, he's yeah, also a really all, good guy. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, all, all, all three, all three, of course, are great and added to something. But it's funny you said that because I am not a musician, right? I consider myself more of a commentary. But I kind of always felt that way about Jim that he kind of had kind of the best of those two. But then, yeah. he, and then, as you said, well, I, I've heard he's a great guy. I, I haven't met him a couple times, but I don't know uh, uh, him that well. But he also brings not only those two, but also had that enthusiasm too, right? Mm-hmm. He, yeah, he kind of he had a little jolt of youth, right? Because he was ten years yeah. younger than everybody. Yeah, uh, and he. He still, he still has that. If you see him in the show, he now he acts twenty years younger than everybody, even though he's still ten years. So, no, it's fantastic. Yeah, I, I don't, I do, uh, Chris. And, and, well, uh, if I guess I did want to talk a little. Uh, we've been asking all these questions of like, oh, here are things that we've always wanted to know. Uh, mm-hmm. But I did want to give you some opportunity about a. Uh, to talk about your, yourself, one of them is that I know it's been mentioned otherwise, but but maybe you wanted to share a little bit, and it doesn't have to be too much about the the Indian music influence, and and you know you 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 talked about you know yoga, you know, and and your, and your travel to India, and it's even been mentioned in some of the uh, the the liner notes of the CDs. Mm. Oh so yeah, for kind kind of fans that know the band and but maybe haven't listened to your other interviews or didn't know as much as we know did you did you want to talk about that at all yeah that's nice here eric uh, well I, i'm i'm a type of person i'm a there's a there you can spot us in the world i've been to india and i i've before counting crows even i was reading all the seeking book there's modern philosophers like alan watts and joseph campbell and i was reading the bhagavad gita the bible the 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 Ramayana, and I was getting into Indian text and Indian because uh, I was looking for for I'm I'm, look, I'm I'm a type of person that's looking for answers, you know, <laughs> that have nothing to do with the outside. I want to I want to kickstart something inside myself, 
and I want to perfect myself. I, you know, I, I, I want to, there, there's a reason we're alive and as life ticks by, is, is it really just money and job? And I'm one of those guys. I'm, I'm riddled with anxiety. I, I'm in a spiritual crisis. Mm-hmm. Well, welcome to the club. And, 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 any, and I notice I the anxiety hasn't changed too much as I've gotten older. So, yes, uh, right, yeah. right. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It keeps you on your toes, you know. And, uh, you know, so I, I, felt, I discovered a type of meditation and there's a guru. And I'd always thank her on our records in different ways. And uh, and I'd still do it today. She passed away in 2011, but okay. uh, it's it's a meditation that involves the Kundalini and the chakras, and you know, and and I'm I'm I believe in it. I, when I go to these seminars and sit and meditate with a big group of people, and uh, it's a very simple, it's a very benign and simple thing. You just hold your hands out and put your attention at the top of your head, and until you can feel like a little cool wind or even some heat. And then you get a sense of peace that comes with that. And I've been doing it since the late 80s. And there's no money involved. I mean, you know, much to my parents' horror, they thought I joined a cult, and a sex cult or something. And, but it's, it's very common sense, you know. So, but there's, there's people like me all, all out there in the rock world. It's kind of few and far between, you know. It's, the rock world is full, littered with a very bitter, sort of atheistic and bitter vibes which is just the way people are I, I think that's most of the world and i don't blame them you know i don't i don't blame it because everyone's kind of pissed off at being alive hurts <laughs> you know so <laughs> you know. and i think mm-hmm. some people that are attracted to being a musician or would even be willing to go on the road attracts a certain personality that might get into that and substance abuse it's all it's all linked together because like a selection effect i think yeah so for someone who was interested in learning more, did you have a particular way for people to find out about that? Oh, yeah. Thanks, Eric. It's called Sahaja Yoga. It's spelled S-A-H-A-J-A and then the word yoga. And you can find it all over the Internet. You can find talks on YouTube. You know, it's it's everywhere. Uh, but it's just not popular. It, it, there's, there's no certificate that says you've graduated. So people don't gravitate toward it. You know, <laughs> it's like water. You know, so how, how much time did you spend? in I only say this because I'm someone who spent uh, quite a bit of time traveling because of, like you said, anxiety and learning about the world and knowing that just life is not just the rat race. Then if I did that, that I wouldn't know about other things on there. Mm-hmm. One of the countries I did not travel to was India. Not that I'm not interested. Uh, I've, I've heard it's not uh, necessarily an easy place to travel uh, unless you, of course, maybe have friends there already. But I have heard, including one of my um, exes, that, and, and I had another friend that said, was also maybe as well-traveled than me. And they said, it wasn't always their favorite place. Some of them it was, but they said that maybe no other country changed them as much as India. So that, that always reminded yeah. me of you when they said that, because I know that you felt that way. Did, how, how, how long did you spend there when you were traveling there? And, uh... I, well, the, the longest at one point, I've been there probably 20 times or more over the mm. years, but the longest was three months, maybe four months during one of the Counting Crows breaks. I got to stay there for a really long time and kind of live there. And it does something to you. It's the chaos and the smog and the smells and, you know, <laughs> lepers rolling up to you on skateboards and banging you for money. And, and, uh, but everyone's happy. The, 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 the relationship with matter is very healthy there. If it's not broken, you don't need to paint the car. You don't need to paint the building. It, as long, if it works, just leave it alone. It's okay. Don't, mm. don't worry about it. And the, 
And I, I just, it, it, it does change you. India changes you. It's, it's stressful at first, but if you can manage to stay there for a few weeks, you start to relax into it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I've heard. Yeah, you saying it reminds me of something that I just heard on uh, a, a clip on Bill Maher actually yesterday where, where this, this woman was a, is, is a war correspondent, right? She's been to so many wars, but she goes, she's only been attacked once, which was a year ago on the New York subway. Wow. Right. And, and, yeah. and punched it. And by, was just a random attack. Some some person just came up and punched her in the face. So wow. I don't know. It just but when you're talking yeah. about the anger and angst that that in yeah. some of these other countries might have other difficulties. But but yeah. but but she didn't experience that. A colleague Gosh. was working in India once to about like like learning and, and that, that that sort of patience. I was like, oh, you were late to this meeting. He's like, yeah, we got it was there in India at the time. And they were like, we got stuck behind an elephant on the way in and. <laughs> You get to the office when the elephant says you get to the, there's not, no honking is going to make that change. And so that yes. patience level of just like, the traffic will be what the traffic will be. And we yes. will get there when we get there. And, you know. Yes, that idea of time, like being that, like this thing that has to work is not in India, you know. And I remember trying to get on a plane and we were told, oh, it's going to be a 10 hour wait. The plane is 10 hours late. You know, it hasn't left another country. And there were tears. People were crying. And it's all these Westerners getting on the plane. And you get on and people are preening in mirrors and mad that their seats being has luggage on it and you realize no oh that's right we're going back to the west you know where everyone's all all uptight you know (laughs) like if if i get the kahunas someday i'm gonna move my family to india you know we're just gonna go live there (laughs) this is a perfect segue i think that i think uh now i knew some of it i was asking you uh right before we press the record button but of some of the work you've done since counting crows and i know that one of the albums you uh released was indian influence maybe you can talk a bit about that and as i said i knew of another single that i had listened to of you uh so just other, and then you were on tour last year with something else. So maybe if you can talk about some of your other music projects uh, post Crows. Yeah. Well, I've been stalking my heroes in music, and I've managed to play collaborate with at least four members of Fairport Convention. I, I made awesome. a solo record that got signed by an English label early on. That was back in like 08. And I played all the instruments myself. And that was kind of my letter to the world. And that's got the picture of my guru on the cover. And uh, and it's all uh, songs. She told me to write songs. And so I started doing that. I did a couple of cover songs. And that record actually got legitimately signed by a label. And I was really proud of that. And uh, it was called Voice Print. And they, they'd had all the Yes records on at the time. And, the, and through Voice Print, I got to meet the singer of Yes, John Anderson. And I collaborated with John, wrote a song with him. So little different little mountaintops, you know. Um, and, I mean, I, and I just want to tell people listening that that that's, that is still available. I, I mean, Amazon, I know you can get it by CD and MP3. Uh, Matt Malley, Goddess Within, right, is the yeah. title of that? Yeah. yeah, The Goddess Within, which was kind of my own little name for the Kundalini, which is the feminine, the, the divine, uh, like a divine sort of thing in, that we're all born with. And it's in the feminine form. And uh, like the spirit or the Atman in the heart is the a spark is the masculine and the Kundalini is the feminine. And, and when they unite at the top of the head is when you get your enlightenment. So that's my whole goal in life. Right <laughs> <there>. <laughs> so, you know. Did you, and then you, you were on tour last year with, with a queen uh, cover band. Yeah. Playing the music of queen. And that was really cool. Uh, just back on a tour bus, 
sitting in a restaurant and eating a steak and just being on my iPhone and then just playing for 4,000 people. And they're, they're such nice guys and they're such great musicians. They're killer musicians in that band. Uh, you have to be, I guess, to play Queen's music. And they're all from Glasgow, uh, they're from Glasgow, Scotland and Northern England. And so there was always a cup, cup of tea brewing on the bus. And it, it was just a time of my life. I spent a whole year, uh, nine months on the road with them. And it was just awesome. You know, how, how did that get or how did how did that happen? How did that, you... good question? That happened. A friend of mine plays bass with Jethro Toll's guitar player. His name's Martin Barr. And uh, the bass player, my friend Alan, uh, and I hooked up when he was in L.A. And I, I told him, I'm looking for something. I, I, you know, let me know if you got if you got anything out there. I just don't want to play bass again. And he said, coincidentally, his friend called him that morning that was looking for a stand in for the Queen tribute band. And so he got me on the phone with him and I couldn't understand a word he said, because when you talk to somebody from Glasgow, you just can't understand. I mean, you don't know what they're saying. And so we just kind of made a plan for me to learn the songs. I had four days to learn two hours of Queen songs and then meet them up in Northern California and jump on the tour bus. And uh, and I stayed with them for nine months uh, just because we really got along great. Are you working any, on any any projects now that'll be touring or any albums or? Uh, not really, Chris. My, my son Tonson, he, he's twenty three years old. He tells me to make another solo record. That that's where it's at, and it's a lot of work and it's a, it's a lot <laughs> of time. I I got a piano for my sixtieth birthday. My wife got me a piano, and I've started playing the folk songs that I love, the UK hmm. traditional music, and arranging them for piano, which is unique. And I'm gonna start just making. I put a YouTube up there uh, of playing. That's where you heard me, Erica. Yes, that, that's where first... I just finally decided to contact you was uh, when you when you when you when you put that, yeah, that song that was great. So if people, which want song was to... it for, for yeah. people who aren't having? Oh, it's called "The Hills of Greenmore." It's a it's a two hundred year old Irish folk song, and you can just find it on YouTube. You can type Matt Malley, "The Hills of Greenmore," you know, and that's there's my YouTube channel with five videos, and, and <laughs> it's viral with four hundred views or something. So anyway, <laughs> but I, I'm I'm proud of it. <laughs> You know, but if 400 they, but, a lot more there's a lot of youtube videos out there with five so not true <laughs> but but if people want to either follow what you're doing or get besides um you know maybe if they didn't know about your solo cd and pick that up it would be nice uh but besides that your youtube page is a good way to yeah yeah it's a good way to actually contact me too i guess you know if you want to find if you want to shoot me a message i'll get a bell on my phone because i literally <laughs> get one a month you know and it, it'll be like oh wow and uh yeah How yeah that's cool I was going to say, how cool was that? And I know you mentioned in another interview, but also, and then maybe other band members did that. Well, I know Adam, no, because he lives in, in an apartment in, in, in New York. But but I know um, just from hearing people talk that both you and uh, Dave Bryson, I guess, while being members of the Crows and could use some of that early success money to build a studio in, the, in your home. Yeah. How cool is that? And I heard you on one interview saying that your son has been using it or one of your yeah. sons. Yes, yeah, he took point. it over. Yeah, he took it over. I, I don't, I can't, I don't recognize anything in there anymore. Computers, the software, I can't do anything. Uh, but yeah, that's like for a musician and a songwriter, a studio is like a, a cathedral. You know, you can build your own cathedral, and now you can do it with a laptop and two speakers, and you know, a, a good preamp and a microphone, and you can make records, broadcast quality albums on a little desk, and it, it's a great time to be a musician. You know. But for right now, though, I'm in love with my piano, and my folk songs. Oh, so, so that 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 that's the that's the um, instrument. I mean, it's so neat talking to professional musicians, which I can't relate to. I mean, of course, I played you know a couple instruments in elementary school or whatever. But a lot of them seem to lo- like 
you know, your expertise was in the bass, but you love other instruments, right? Mm -hmm. You love the, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I was a piano player first. I, I, uh, when I was like seven years old, I was taking piano lessons, and then uh, I, then when I became on my trips to India, I started falling in love with Indian music, different types of Indian music. There's Kowali music, and Northern Indian, uh, Southern Indian, Karnatak, and uh, I started to realize how awesome those musicians are. So I'm a student of Indian slide guitar as well. And uh, actually on my YouTube channel, there's another video of me playing my beginner's version of Indian slide guitar. But I'm a fan of that instrument. It dawned on me now, like in my late middle age or whatever, that I'm not, I'm not a bass player or a piano player. I'm a musician who plays instruments. And everyone should think yeah. like that. You know, yeah. like you, know, you never think of Paul McCartney as the bass player of the Beatles, cause, mainly because they're so awesome that the songs outshine anything. But I, in Counting Crows, I was proud to be Counting Crows bass player. But I'm learning later in life that I play bass, but I'm a musician. And I didn't think that early on when I was younger, mm -hmm. you know. No, I, it was... I, it was yeah, it was, it was, it's, I think it's clear to the fans too. And I, I just wanted yeah. to say, and I, I want to uh, say this to all the band members at some point, but I know, at, as you said, Adam's a special talent, clearly, both with his lyrics, his musicianship, it, it, that, that's what, you know, and it helped make the kind of career special. And he was a great, or is a great frontman. But I, I think for someone who really is into the crows as much as, as Chris and I, I, I think. It was also, it is also a special band about the talent of all the other musicians. I mean, it's just so clear that your bass was 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 in, uh, was and is incredible, and and dancers and Dave's, you know, what he brought to everything, and Charlie as a keyboard. I mean, it just I, it was all 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 of the parts of it. That's a nice idea uh, to say, Eric. It, it's, I mean, Counting Crows is 90, 99% Adam, and the band mm -hmm. knows it. But those records were made because of the way of five guys got along, you know, five or six, you know. And, and uh, you know, I played bass parts because maybe somebody either suggested something or played something that made me do this, or Adam sung something, and everyone's like that. So those records are the product of those five or six guys, you know. So it's yeah. nice of you to say that. Yeah. And the live shows, I mean, like, I, I think if if you guys weren't having such interesting musical conversations together, we wouldn't all be listening to concerts from 30 years ago now. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's there's something about those shows. And if that was just, you know, any anyone of the band, if it was just Adam, I don't think it would be the same. But it's the fact that all of you guys can kind of the way you all talk to each other that mm -hmm. created this very again, I think I think the band has this incredibly unique way of of improvising that is so i think it's one of the things i always just find fascinating that you you guys developed your own thing that i don't think anyone else has done quite like before or since i don't have never found anyone who sort of does it like you guys did especially at that time you know it, yeah interesting chris I, I i i remember in the 90s we were compared early on to hootie and the blowfish and i, I like hootie and the blowfish they're they're cool but adam hated the comparisons because he was very much about his words his lyrics mm. and that we're not that type of band where it's like you know, we were again. We were trying to make no ordinary moments in all of our songs. I mean, not to say Hootie and the Blowfish are ordinary moments; they write great songs. But yeah. I remember Adam took offense at being compared to Hootie because he 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 kind of aimed aimed in a more literary uh, songwriting. He he looked at his lyrics as very important, and that reflects into the band and the way they play with each other is is how important that it is to Adam. 
you know, and it's and it's true. I, you know yeah I, I could see that yeah i'll have yeah. to um boy there's one video chris you'll you'll have to tell me later and i'll if i can find it again i'll send it to matt because i think it's special but there's one because it was kind of an off the record recording but there was somebody that recorded the band just kind of like not jamming out the wrong thing it was almost like an acoustic practice it was like before a concert oh and it was a cover of something oh i just have to anyway i'll find it but it just it just struck me as a nice moment and i, and I thought you were there matt yeah. just because this is more of a, tr a trivia thing a lot of and you mentioned it on one and i think jeff told us too because i didn't know for sure that you did a uh, one little uh, trivia about you is that you did um play on i think it was at least or maybe not at least, but two songs after you officially left the band uh, under quotes that you played on Sundays, right? Which was on <laughs> their fifth studio album. And yeah. I think you also played on Baby, I'm a Big Star Now, yes. which is a big, big favorite of, of Crows fans. I mean, they good. just absolutely love that song. Yeah, good. Yes. So I don't yeah, know if you've anything I'm, to say about those. Yeah, I'm happy about that. You know, like my... my uh... <laughs> After leaving the band, I got to be on a couple of more songs. You know, that's exciting. You know, uh, they, they actually pulled <laughs> yeah, no. my bass. They, 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 I think I recorded those parts in the band uh, during my years in the band. So they just flew the bass from a hard drive somewhere and put it on a modern session. You know, so they kept me, and it was nice of them to do that. <laughs> you know. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Uh, I mean, I know we're got, we got hit at the hour mark, so we're going to. Wrap, wrap things up. I don't know why. For some reason, too, I always wanted to. It's always I know it's such a little moment, but when you it's it's, it's not complicated either. But when you play that little part, in Mrs. Potter's, which is also a classic song, I think. But you have that little mm -hmm. bass part in the video. I don't know if you remember. You show up, you know, you kind of face the camera, you play a little bass and then walk away or something. Like uh, that. Oh, yes. Yes. I remember that. Is it the official <laughs> video, right? Where we're all in a yes. room? <laughs> yeah. Yep. These, yes. That was a great bass, by the way. That was that's a black Fender jazz bass that belonged to ACDC's bass player. And I sold that thing and I'm still kicking myself, you know, for selling <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, well, to wrap towards the end, I should, I, I can, I can mention a trivia fact. I think I was at your last show with the band, Matt. I think it's cause you left at the end of 2004 and I'm the Hammerstein ballroom, I think was the last show of 2004. Yes. That was my last show. Yep. Any, any memories of that? Was it a good, cause I, it was only my second show. So I thought it was amazing, but I also had no real context. <laughs> Uh huh. Yeah. No. Honestly, that that to me was it was a dark time for me because I was leaving a great career and t turning my back on it. And uh, I, I I chose family because I knew that was the thing to do. The band knew I was not into them anymore. They 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 knew for for months that uh, I was suffering out there. And that last show, you know, it just it, it represents a dark time to me. You know. Uh, but but the beginning of family life and another life, you know. So so the, I should say that moment was dark, but it was it was the change that made it feel dark. It, everyone's afraid of a big change, and uh, you know. So I, not not to say that that was a bad experience, but it was it was a scary time to me. And it's, right. it worked out fine. I'm here to I'm here to say <laughs> everything's okay, <laughs> you know. And, so, and well, it was a really good show. Still, it was still, still feeling. Yes, good. <laughs> yes, good. Apes, you want to go back? It's like it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it's, well, sometimes it does take right those negative because if you had other things going, you would have kept going, and then you maybe would have neglected the family at least yeah. to the standards that you wanted to give. So. So, yeah. so some, sometimes it takes a negative what, impetus to, 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 to make a yes. change. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
exactly. Well, I, I have yeah. my funny trivia, Matt, because this is just like I make connections. So I've never said that, that but this is my at least piece of trivia. That, and it is, I think, funny, you know, given, right, uh, well, anyway, your personality, but that I think you are, uh, you can be shown with two instances of giving the middle finger to kind of gross fans, right? <laughs> One of them would be, if I remember right, you did, which I don't even think Chris knew, the the recovering the satellite insert, right? Isn't that a self-portrait of yes. you under the CD where yes. if you lift up the CD, you're given the finger, right? Yes, yes, yes. In fact, I I, uh, I I did that. I was kind of frustrated at the guys for some reason, and I just kind of wrote, drew that as a middle finger to the band. We were yeah. we were fighting about something, and Adam liked it so much that he hung it on the fireplace of the thing uh, uh, of the house. So, so it hung there during the whole making of satellites, and he put it on the record. I still have that. So if anyone like becomes that's great. Yes, yes. I, 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 you know, I'll take a picture of that for you guys if you want to see yeah. it. But it's a... yeah, we'll, we'll just send that out. Yeah, and, yes. and but the other yeah, thing, say, which... a line I a line I've always loved is there's no peace without the middle finger. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <That's>... but <laughs> right, but <laughs> but it. I made the con... but the other thing, Matt, is that you also show the middle finger in the kind of un... well, no official, but it wasn't widely released. The all my friends music video. Yes. Yeah, I'm on the roller skates, I believe. Roller blade. Yeah, there's a, there's a big thing. Yes. There's a quick note of you on the roller skates and they're recording you because they're showing family and kind of off the tour things. And yes. you quickly give the camera the finger and I laugh and I was like, oh, yes. there's Matt Malley giving the yes. finger again. So. Yes, there's a more subtle one on that same video. If you'll see, um, I'm playing bass and he he has me on camera. I just made the thing to flip that guy off and we were laughing yeah. about it. And he yeah. has me on camera lifting my middle finger while playing bass on stage at, at the camera. This it's very oh, hard okay. to see. But <laughs> he, I'm going to look for that over the yeah. next couple of weeks. So, yeah. well, 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 thank you so much. I don't want to take any more of your time. So, I, I mean, this was just such a pleasure. And so, and thank you for you know all your contributions to the band, and of course, coming to talk to us here on on Sullivan Street. As uh, you know, as I said. I think all four of those albums that you worked on are all incredible. Um, and then, of course, you know, all your live shows and uh, 15 years was a long time. So thank you for your musicianship and service. And uh, Awesome, yeah. Eric. Thank you. You know, thank you both, Chris, Eric. It's great to talk with you. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, we'll hope, we'll hope to keep in touch and, um, you know, hopefully have you on the on, uh, back on the pod at some time in the future. And um and yeah, and and we'll uh, and we'll and we'll link to your uh, YouTube account on um, where, where we post the uh, the episode recap. So awesome! Yeah, great. That's cool. All right, th- thank All thank right. you so much. So have, All right, have you a guys. great rest of the weekend. Happy holidays. Um, yes. And I'll and I'll uh, yeah I'll stop the recording here, and then if you want to give us another uh, goodbye, we can. So so. For the for the listeners out there, I uh, hope you enjoyed our discussion with, with Matt. And if we have him again, maybe we'll uh, allow you to submit some Q&A. And uh, we'll see you next time on Sullivan Street. Thank you so much. Almost.